Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. What is the history of disability accessible design? And how does this history get written? In this episode of Contra, I talk to historians Elizabeth Guffey and Bess Williamson about their books on this topic. We discuss new terms and theories of accessibility, other key scholars working in this area, and the archives that have been important for all of us as we investigate the influence of accessibility on U.S. culture and society. I am so delighted to be here with Elizabeth Guffey and Bess Williamson, who are two of my favorite people and colleagues in disability studies. Um, We've all written books about histories of accessibility. And so today we're going to be having a conversation from our perspectives as um, scholars who are writing about the history of accessibility. Elizabeth's book is called Designing Disability Symbols, Space, and Society, and it was published by Bloomsbury in 2018. And Bess's book is called Accessible America, A History of Disability and Design, published by NYU Press in 2019. And my book is called Building Access, Universal Design and the Politics of Disability, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2017. So welcome to Elizabeth and Bess. Hi, Amy. Hi. Um, So to get us started, we were kind of discussing some general themes and questions before recording this episode. Um, And one of the questions that has come up between us a lot, I think, is why it is that um, these three books kind of were in development and published so close to each other temporally, and that before this, it kind of seems like there wasn't a lot. Um, there was a sort of, maybe there were more articles and things like that, um, but not books. So there's kind of this moment happening in which we find ourselves in a relatively new field or subfield. So uh, I wonder what you all think about that and why you think this may have happened. Um, we can talk a little bit about how we came to our projects too. It's weird because Often, you know, in academia, you always have this fear that you're going to be scooped. Like you get this idea, you want to do something, and then there's this fear, oh my God, I got to work on it really fast before somebody else does it. And I guess when I entered into this topic, I didn't even think about that anybody was doing anything related. And then when I discovered that first idea, I discovered Bess, and then you, Amy, too. But you guys were doing it from such different angles. There wasn't really anything threatening about it. But the fact that we've all kind of come at this from different directions at the same time, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that, too. So I feel like, obviously, my project grew out of my own disability and my ways of dealing with the world and the problems I was having. But um, as I started to get angrier and angrier about all those issues, I started to look around and I came across Rosemary Garland Thompson's writings and David Serlin's. And because they had already started to conceptualize this field, I in many ways feel that I've just been building on that, building out to design, which they never explicitly um, dealt with. 
So for me, I feel like they really were foundational for uh, what I did. But I'm eager to hear about your uh, interest and how it is that you ended up doing this and why at this moment. Um, yeah, this has um, been really interesting. And I, for me, my book was published like about a year about, you know, who's counting 13 to 15 months after both of your books. Um, and so it was like this amazing, I mean, I already obviously knew your works in, in progress and we had been on all kinds of conference things together and so on. But it was like this amazing moment of being able to read these books that, um, you know, there are these key moments of overlap where we were sort of looking at the same materials. And it was just incredible because otherwise um, I was so often sort of speaking from a perspective where, you know, of, of sort of nobody had really written historically about these um, these issues. But to say a little bit, I mean, uh, about sort of where I was coming from. So for both me and Amy, these projects started as our dissertations, whereas Elizabeth, you're a more seasoned scholar. Um, and, you know, as I was working in design history and sort of American history, um, history of technology, I was, I really came to it totally from an intellectual standard, standpoint, you know, since I am not disabled myself um, and had had a relatively limited sort of in personal experience with the many sort of issues of making access on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I really came to this through scholarly reading. So I was reading a lot of like design writing from the 1960s about all, you know, sort of everything that was wrong with design technology of that moment and sort of a search for environmental, um, you know, uh, solutions, um, uh, addressing, you know, over consumption and inequality. And the design, you know, writer, activist, Victor Papanek, um, you know, mentions sort of, in, you know, folds into his critique of um, U.S., you know, and sort of Western capitalism and design, the pointing out that things don't work well for disabled people. And he uses his mother as an example. Um, and I just like at the time, I had never really seen those things all discussed in the same breath. Um, so that was sort of the point of entry for me. Um, it obviously goes a lot longer than that, but it really was looking at designers and what they were identifying as some of the problems um, that needed to be addressed in design in the later 20th century. Hmm. Yeah. For me, I think um, I had sort of a weird path to working on what I eventually came to because I was uh, um, not in a history program. I was in a women's gender and sexuality PhD program. My advisor was Rosemary Garland Thompson. And I had all these interests and in kind of like architecture and the body that were more theoretical. Um, but through various circumstances kind of like narrowed my project and it became more empirical and historical. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I came to studying universal design was that I was, so when I first entered graduate school, I was really coming into my disability identity for the first time and having disability culture and community. But I, for the most part, um, most of what we talk about as accessibility in the built environment sense and the universal design sense does not address my access needs. And so a lot mm -hmm. of my questions came from the perspective of trying to understand like why are universal design and 
um, other types of accessibility in the built environment, like barrier-free design, so focused on physical disability in kind of like a specific set of ways um, and kind of finding the genealogy of that. And what I ended up doing was kind of more of like a history of science and history of technology, sort of like science and technology studies um, approach, which was very, very different from where I started. So it's interesting to kind of like look back on the genesis of that. Um, and also to think about how, you know, we have all kind of interfaced with each other at various times in the development of these projects. I think, Bess, you and I met pretty early on in graduate school, maybe like in our third year or something like that. Um, and I remember like sharing PDFs of resources and things like that. Um, and Elizabeth, I met you for the first time at the Society for History of Technology conference, which was a while ago now. <laughs> but you had also reviewed um, some books for uh, design and culture in the journal I was editing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're like, this has all been cooking for a really long time. Um, and maybe not it's not like we had some like meeting at some point where we're like, one day we'll have a field and it'll look like this, but it did work out in a really interesting way. Um, so I wonder if we could just talk a little bit, um, just thinking about some of the disciplinary similarities and differences in our approaches um, and also how they relate to the archives that we're using, because something that, is really interesting about these three books is that they do reference in some ways a lot of the same archival and primary source material and so it kind of allows for this like like consideration of how we're all reading those materials in similar or different ways um, so i wonder what are your thoughts about this question of kind of like discipline and archive and um just to jump in uh so I love working in archives, and that really was what drew me into the field um, as a historian and then as an art historian later. But as my own disability has become more pronounced, it's actually harder and harder for me to travel and also to be going to libraries. Um, so in a way, that was a startling kind of um, realization. Uh, so my whole practice as a scholar has really shifted over the years. Um, but at the same time as my disability is more pronounced, archives have started to go online much more. So that in a way has been a real kind of grace note for me uh, and it probably is not being highlighted enough the way that these archives are starting to open up. So anyhow, to bring that back to your initial question. So for me, the University of Illinois, we were talking about Tim Nugent's work there and I think all three of our books address that. The fact that Illinois actually digitized big chunks of that was a huge help for me. It also was a way for me to, you know, somebody who has these mobility issues to really access all the stuff that I used to love getting into and doing, but had kind of left my life. Uh, and you know, to be able to come back and do that kind of research online was really important for me. So th there is something in the field too, and maybe the way that these archives are being handled. I don't imagine though that frankly at the University of Illinois, they're thinking of a scholar like me, you know, with mobility issues, being able to work online with what they have. But I would say that the digitization of archives has been a great help to somebody like me in a way that even 10 years ago, I probably would not have been able to do that kind of research. Mm. On the other hand, I think of Bess and also you, Amy, too, as people who really roll up your sleeves and actually go into physical archives. 
Yeah, I mean, I had such a um, like like grad student lifestyle, um, and I'd say very privileged and like mobile in many ways. In that, I had like no family attachments during graduate school, um, and was able to spend a summer. Well, I should say I had family attachments. I guess my sibling lived in Berkeley, so. I spent like a whole summer there doing research um, at the Bancroft Library. And I think you raise a really good point. You know, a lot of, um, so uh, just to backtrack, so while we all three touch on on the history of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign as a central first site for sort of wheelchair access on a wide scale in the U.S., we all touch a little bit at least on the emergence of disability rights um, scene in Berkeley. And Amy and I have a lot of that material as well. And their archive, the Disability Rights Independent Living Movement collection, I'm not sure what the last letter in that um, archive is, has a lot that's digitized, but I would say that has a lot that's not digitized. So what's amazing is their fantastic oral history collection, um, which was started, I think, in the late 1990s, um, basically as some of the original players in that scene started to die, they um, realized the urgency of interviewing them. Um, And that, you know, having this, yeah, just, you know, reams of pages of oral histories that you can just download and search and look for, you know, and you get sort of pulled into this intense, you know, interpersonal issues and gossip among the different characters. Um, It's kind of an intense uh, archive, but it occurs to me how much isn't. In fact, I'm thinking, Amy, of like this one image that both of of us used that I think maybe I sent my scan of it to you, the cover of The Independent Mm -hmm. um, uh, that has this great scene of these activists sort of as they're they're scanning the city, sort of documenting access being kind of pushed up. a curb cut, but it's like that, those little individual pieces of paper, um, a lot of them are still just in a box, you know, offsite have to be ordered a few days ahead of time. So there's a lot, there is still a lot of that labor. And, and I would say as somebody who doesn't live a lot of these issues on a day-to-day basis as much, I mean, I would, I say that just to acknowledge that once you, as a non-disabled person, once you kind of get into this terrain, you realize that access issues are not so cut and dry that of course I, I experienced them in a variety of different ways in my life. I, I won't get into that too, too in detail, but I just don't want to be too um, black and white about it. But um, being I, in the site was really significant to me as a historian, you know, I'm a historian trained in material culture studies. There's an incredible emphasis on kind of being in places and doing things, which, you know, we could, consider the problems of that in a lot of ways but um it kind of establishes a certain method like walking the streets of berkeley taking photographs of old or biking in many cases taking photographs of old ramps and houses and curb cuts was a big part of this um i actually visited urbana champaign now that i live in chicago kind of later in the process and was so became so aware of the subtle differences there between a kind of 1950s era access and um, the, a kind of 1970s, 1980s in Berkeley, even though all of these things have been, you know, renovated in the interim, there's still a kind of rugged access in Urbana-Champaign. Like there's a lot of cracked concrete, you know, ramps that go on the back sides of buildings. Like it's just, you can kind of still see that in the fabric of the landscape. So being there was significant to me. And I think I kind of try to think this through a little bit now in terms of like what, you know, what, um, 
you know, what that opened, but also, you know, what, what areas of archive work can we, can we get rid of a little bit of this sort of urgency to be places um, and replace those things with digital, um, digital approaches for greater access? I mean, I think both of your responses raised so many interesting questions because in the fields that we're working in, especially if we're talking about material culture, architecture, cities, those places are part of the historical archive and studying such recent histories makes them even more so part of that historical archive. But um, like physical presence is mediated by all the accessibility issues that we've been studying. Um, and then, of course, archives themselves, um, you know, present so many issues that are like intensely physical. I, I've revisited a few archives to get digital pictures kind of like late um, in the process of working on my book like getting higher quality, higher resolution scans. And so it had been like six years since I'd been to those places. And I just remember feeling what had happened to my body in those six years um, mm -hmm. and how different it was to access like the lifting of boxes and the physical space and the lights and the tables and um, the sorts of things that like were easy to kind of like power through were very different. And so, um, that kind of also raises additional questions or it connects to conversations that many scholars, especially community scholars like Corbett O'Toole have been having about these specific archives themselves and the story that they tell about disability rights and the histories of access um, and the ways that they're limited in other ways too. So, you know, what it means to present the history of Berkeley or the history of Urbana-Champaign um, in according to the narratives that are in those archives when the archives are also extremely white and um, exclude a lot of like queer people and um, lots of other people who kind of like were part of the history but aren't documented there. Um, and so one thing I wanna point out about all three of our books that I think is interesting is that we are also like involved in critiquing the archive and kind of like making evident the limitations of the evidence itself. And that is maybe part of like a kind of methodology that we have been trying to create around accessibility too that departs a little bit from some other like histories of disability or histories of design. Yeah, one of the things in my book that I kept coming across, and this is probably from my training as um, basically a Europeanist in art history, is that I was drawn, of course, to these early narratives, not in the US, but um, over in Europe. And the approaches there just kept striking me as being so different from the American ones. And a lot of that was getting down to this question, kind of what you're alluding to, Amy, of whose voices are being heard. And those were issues over there, too. Uh, and I really you start to see, uh, maybe it's easier when you're a little outside of the discussion, to start to see these patterns of um, acceptance or there are certain things that people feel comfortable talking about, other things that are forbidden to be discussed. Um, that really started to intrigue me, especially in the UK and in Scandinavia, you know, the way that disability was dealt with. And um, 
you know, it's complicated everywhere. It's fascinating to kind of do a cut, a kind of analysis of your books versus mine, because you guys go so deeply into the American context and really give this kind of counterpoint to what it was that I was writing about in my books, uh, too. Yeah, I think it would be helpful. I don't know, Elizabeth, for the for the purposes of the podcast to to sort of highlight that. I think more specifically because I think it's so significant. You know, the U.S. is um, kind of the most prominent narrative in many ways around the issues of access and um, disability rights because of the you know greater presence of federal law. Um, but that the the kind of counterexample that you bring to the in the book is so significant, right? Of the story of this this kind of other conversation that's going on there, which is much more based in sort of uh, social welfare culture and, and primarily around sort of visibility of disabled people, right? That this architect, Selwyn Goldsmith is, am I saying Goldsmith? Yeah, sorry. Um, is saying, you know, comes across the American example and is like, yeah, this is really great. And then starts to sort of question it. Well, what is this emphasis always on these like, um, hyper independent, super tough, you know, veterans, they never going to have to have a sign that marks, you know, the right way to go and they'll never be pushed and so on. And he's looking at these, you know, sort of disabled folks in small towns in England who, you know, could really use a sign pointing to the bathroom and they're not part of, you know, these sort of intense post-war uh, rehabilitation programs. And so, and then that's really the origin of a sort of greater visibility in the international symbol of access. I think that counter sort of counter narrative is so significant and, you know, also points to like the many counter narratives, which um, exist in, in different countries that haven't, you know, really been written about at this point. There's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, I agree. There is a lot of work to be done there. And it does give us a better understanding of the American context. We are, of course, all residing in the U.S. and we teach at American institutions. But I think it's um, important to actually keep uh, the big picture in mind, too. When I started to work on the British stuff, it was really coming out of my own um, interest and the fact that I had lived in the UK and had vaguely noticed that things were different there. The approach was different, but I never really quantified it or what it meant. And um, it was Goldsmith's idea initially was to accept everything American as being great, that uh, everything that they were doing at Illinois and indeed that idea of independence above all, all you're trying to do is level the playing field for disabled people. That was so different than what he ended up deciding was a more socialist uh, approach that was more appropriate for the um, United Kingdom and for the socialist democracies that followed his um, example. That, though, too, has its limitations. And for me, it was a constant play in the back of my mind. Which one of these did I really want to live in as a disabled person? It's nice to have people help <laughs> a lot, but it's also nice to be independent. And for, even in my own um, life, it's a constant struggle. So maybe I was reading into these examples a little bit of my own issues in my own life. But at the same time, it really did seem like a contrast other people were living out, too. He certainly was. Yeah, I mean, you're, um, we, and we, you know, all of us have engaged in different levels of sort of critique of the international symbol of access and kind of institutionalized, uh, the kind of limitations of code driven design as opposed to a kind of more grassroots design. But your, um, Elizabeth, your piece in the disability series in the New York Times, you know, was so great in terms of thinking of like, what, what does it mean to live in a world where there's a constant, you're constantly surrounded by a, images of disability, even if that white 
wheelchair stick figure, you know, has all kinds of issues with it, but just seeing it every day um, as a child, that that was so significant to you. And it does a lot of work in that way too, that I never realized it really is out there, not just to show you where accommodations are, but that uh, blue and white symbol teaches other people also what it takes to make an accessible world too, because otherwise a lot of ramps and the rest of it would be overlooked by people who are going about their daily life and not really aware of it. You know, speaking of representations and um, the power that they have, have you guys seen the Apple um, is introducing new emoji, the disability emoji? Mm-hmm. Have you guys looked at this? Mm. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what are you about them? What do you think? Your facial expression is incredulous. (laughs) No, it's interesting. Um, For me, somebody asked me about that recently. So I went back and went through them really closely. And I realized um, the thing, I guess, I I certainly have no problem with emoji in general. And those in particular are okay. But I did notice that they really seem to be as much about the technology that is being used to assist the individual disabled people as the people themselves. So you end up with like hearing impairment is being represented by a hearing aid around an ear (laughs) or the mobility impaired people are primarily, as I recall, two different types of wheelchairs, a power wheelchair and a manual one. And uh, so a lot of it is technology that was being Mm -hmm. highlighted there. Uh, Very little of the disabled bodies themselves, but instead how these people are fixing the uh, disability that seemed to be emphasized. Yeah, it's interesting because I think some of those, a few of them are the kind of the kind of like international symbols equivalent to the ISA that exist for, you know, uh, deaf people, etc. But they do add a few that also lead me to wonder about the history and like development of those few, like having the power wheelchair as distinct from the manual wheelchair is... um, that's just like an interesting addition that I wonder if there was a user involved as a designer who. Well, but, but the, those of us who use wheelchairs uh, will recognize it's not actually a wheelchair that's um, commonly used by individuals. It's really like one of those hospital wheelchairs that you run into or in the airport or something. They have handles on the back and, you know, the rest of it's not that what the type that most individuals who you know live their lives in wheelchairs would um, see commonly. Yeah, yeah, the manual chair. Yeah, I've seen that critique as well. Um, I mean, it's it is so interesting, right? From a design standpoint, um, there was a time. Well, actually, one of my students, um, Effie, her last name Hakim, wrote this paper about like a year ago or so, so before the new symbols, but about sort of arguments from between the internet, you know, sort of like emoji international body that decides and um, various disabled people asking for greater variety. And they were, there was sort of an argument against greater variety, like kind of like a scarcity argument, like we can only have so many emojis. And so we've got to have like these ones, you know, and then there was all these counter arguments. Well, if there's like four different expressions, you know, there's four different like heterosexual couples like why is there only one um i'm sure i'm sure i'm quoting from this paper a little bit wrong but um but i thought that was interesting it's sort of like you know then the the new set it sort of presents abundance right like there's so many possible choices of course a lot of those choices it's like the more detailed you get the more the details can be wrong um, or feel wrong to somebody someone's probably thrilled to see any kind of wheelchair that's not you know a sort of 
white outline and others are like, well, you know, that's not the quite the right um, thing. So, but that design in general, you know, in a digital environment seems to be heading toward this kind of like variety mm -hmm. is the be is the solution, um, which is so different from the eras that the three of us are primarily studying in our books, which is, you know, so governed by an attitude of scarcity that has to do with the, the material environment, right? Like, well, you know, it, we just can't fit a ramp here or it's just, you know, the, these sort of, you know, there's just no space for another um, toilet stall or whatever it is. And so I think we're in kind of, in some platforms, we're in a different era of sort of this variety um, and choice. And that can lead, lead also to a kind of sense of confusion. But it does seem like people are using the emojis. I mean, I see them a lot on <laughs> Twitter, stuff like that. So it just reminds me of that in terms of historical shifts to we are in an era of like widespread neoliberalism and one of the defining features of that is this sort of like niche standardization so like have one of everything but it may be imperfect but who cares because we represented you and also now we're going to sell you this like emoji package or whatever that has one of you in it and um, that it's that like ever expanding that like what neoliberalism does, according to people like David Harvey, is like always like expand and kind of engulf difference rather than um, doing that kind of normate standardization that we are all writing about. Um, and so it really does then require a, a different kind of historical narrative to be told about this period too and I think it's significant that we all kind of like stop the historical scope of our books like where we do because it really is I would say like the ADA was kind of wrapped up in like early kind of cultural neoliberalism too so like that being a kind of like transition point um, distinguishes like what kinds of people can really be represented Right. I, I actually do go up into like the early uh, 2000s because a lot of my book was motivated by Sarah Hendren's um, um, Accessible Icon Project. And for me, that the development of that was a fascinating kind of wrinkle being brought in, bringing this discourse into that signage. Uh, to your point about new, neoliberalism, I think you're totally on, um, I'm totally on board with that, Amy. You're totally right. Uh, one of the things that I see I'm interested in right now and where my uh, future research is kind of leading is this question of um, what Bess and I have talked about and are calling a design model of disability. So building off of in design or excuse me, in, um, disability studies, the so-called medical model or the social model and starting to look at the way that design is becoming more and more important in the way that we are as a culture thinking about disability. So just to go back to those emoji, um, this, these designs that have been created for disabled people that are really highlighted in those emoji. But more broadly, what um, uh, one of the things I find so fascinating is that design has become this thing that is disability is expected to be treated by, that disability could be treated or even cured by digital material things, technology, interface, all that can really start to change the way that we see disability, that we as a culture see it today. Um, I think it just grows out of our obsession with design and technology in the 21st century. So much has changed in our lives, and so we expect disability to change, too, according to the um, norms of what is technologically acceptable. So for me, I'm fascinated by that. And neoliberalism, yeah, 
I think that's really behind this too. It's no longer necessarily doctors who are supposed to be curing disability, nor is it really uh, laws or the government. We're looking to designers to be doing leveling the field and that costs money. We are paying designers to do that. Yeah, it's kind of like agents of the market, right? Like that's one of the yeah. things that you write about a lot in your book too, is that um, the sort of like market language and market logics are part of this milieu of accessibility and people critique that, like they critique the kind of um, like the modes of subjectivity that that may create, like disabled people only being consumers, et cetera. Um, but it is part of the reality of like how power is distributed and um, all of those sorts of things. Like I remember talking to someone who um, came to a talk and I was, you know, talking about like the critique of the disabled consumer and this person lives in like a universal design showroom house. Like their personal home is this like mansion mansion universal design showroom and the thing that she said was that um you know you can like talk to architects about these intellectual points or whatever about um you know how to think about disability like in a more proper way but the broader market of manufacturers and contractors and stuff they're not tapping into the same knowledge base nor are they bound by the same like professional codes and laws and things like that in exactly the same way. And so they're um, like pretending like the market is not the place where all of this goes down is uh, in an ineffective political strategy. We're also at a time where we're moving away from universal to design for one, right? Uh, supposedly everything is being tailored to individuals, but what we often are losing sight of is a lot of that tailoring that's going on is being done by companies that are selling us designs. Most of that stuff that's being kind of fitted out for you personally costs money, costs a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I just... Amy, I'm so struck by the terms that you just used, you know, the uh, like universal design show house or sort of mansion, you know, the idea of disability being kind of transformed into a form of luxury and a form of desirability as sort of the best, the best possible design. And I think that's very much an outcome of the processes that all of us write about in our books of, of designers, you know, sort of embracing this task, whether because it's their own experience, like uh, with Ron Mace, who coined the term or, or public popularized the term universal design or companies who just, you know, sort of recognize the, the market possibility there, right? But that um, this, the you know, the idea that adding disability as kind of a marker to certain categories of design produces, you know, can either pr produce, you know, sort of the worst inconvenient, difficult, contested forms, you know, or these sort of luxury ideals. Um, and, you know, in that sense, disability becomes, yeah, as, as you mentioned, sort of another tool of the marketplace um, as a kind, you know, as a sort of flip side of disability politics, I guess, of disability identity through the marketplace. Hey, Amy here, just to let you know that we're about halfway through this conversation and the remainder will be in the next episode, which will be out in about two weeks. So please remember to tune in. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. 
Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.